Hello, my name is Jody Kazenko. I'm the president and CEO of a company called Torex Gold. We're headquartered in Toronto, Canada. Our primary asset is located in a place called Guerrero, Mexico, that's equidistant between Mexico City and Acapulco, in a place called the Guerrero Gold Belt, a really naturally prolific, abundant geological deposit. We're a fairly young company, having only gone into commercial production in 2016. Um, but since then, we've become very sizable. Last year, we were the second largest gold producer in all of Mexico. We have about 1,000 employees, 2,000 contractors, and that number is growing as we're bringing on our Medialuna project. We produced last year 468,000 ounces, which was the very high end of our guidance. And in terms of what we're known for at a very high level, I would say reliable, consistent production, cash, cash generation, and a healthy and strong balance sheet, and ESG. I mean, investors these days are talking to a great extent about ESG, and I will say um, that Torex has embraced that concept since the start. We had to, operating in a geopolitical jurisdiction that is quite socially complex. So that's generally the pitch. Great, Jody. Lovely to have you on the show. Um, been kind of well, been watching you a long time, and, and so keen to hear the story uh, firsthand. So, um, you're relatively new in the sense that you joined in uh, 2020. Is that right? I joined the company in 2018 as 2018. chief operating officer. Okay, and then um, stepped into the CEO seat in June of 2020. Just you know, as COVID was really settling in over Mexico and the rest of the world. Over here, that's called a hospital pass. Uh, so uh, well done <laughs> on that. Um, we we uh, like there's there's a bunch of stuff I want to talk about. Which was obviously the kind of consistency of the production. You talk about production being something that you're known for, but there's a kind of like drop off looking at 20. Uh, 2023, 2024, and I'm keen to understand what you're doing about it. But um, you guys would have seen that coming a long ways off. So, what were you? Why were you promoted into this position? What was the problem that you were asked to solve? Yeah, I, I mean, one of the things we had facing us was the decline of our open pits. Our Wahis pit is set to come off at the end of 2023. Elimo is set to come off at the end of 2024, and we were bringing on our new project, the Medialuna project. We also have ELG underground operations that have reserves out to the end of 2027. So all of those things have to come together, Matthew, to produce a reliable, consistent production and cash flow plan from now until the end of 2023. We have parts of that problem solved, but the picture for us looked a lot better than it did two years ago because we're doing another pushback in the pit, because we continue to find more on the north side of the river, and we now have um, Medialuna in sharper focus. But um, we still have a small dip to address in 23-24. You will hear more about that as we continue to do exploration in the pits and underground on the north side of the river. And then um, we now have Life of Mine. When we brought our Medialuna um, technical report into focus at the end of Q1 of this year, we effectively tripled mine life. We went from uh, three and a half years to almost 12 years and are now mining sustainably out to 20, 2033. And I will say this, um, with that reserve at Medialuna, only a third of that magnetic anomaly has been drilled off. And so 3.3 million ounces, a third drilled off, folks can do the math. We believe we'll be mining in Guerrero for decades to come. Right. Okay. I think gold, gold, 
Gold price has been good to you over the last couple of years. I mean, obviously it's dropped off a little bit recently. Um, so you're building up those, that, those cash reserves too, talking reserves, um, which is, which is good news because it's going to allow you to do this organic expansion. And, you know, obviously that's the cheapest way to get answers very quickly. But do you think it's enough in itself? Because last, I'm going to go two years have been kind of tough in terms of the share response, uh, share price response. People are talking about you need to do M&A. That's the quickest win here. What would you say to those people? Yeah, I mean, sometimes quick wins aren't the sustainable wins. And so from my perspective, we needed to get the house in order at Morello's. We wanted to have a flagship asset. This asset kicks out cash that is quite remarkable. So in 2021, for example, we delivered over $490 million in adjusted EBITDA an all-in sustaining cost margin of 50%, right in that range. And so we are very disciplined about not only safety and production, but keeping those margins quite healthy so that we have a good response plan in the event that the price of gold drops off. And the goal line for the last two years since I've taken over as CEO has been to just cash up ahead of Medialuna. We knew the project was going to be expensive, so the plan was to just bank the cash as much as we could. At the end of Q1 of this year, we closed with $237 million in cash and no debt. So a very, very healthy balance sheet as we stared down the CapEx price tag of Medialuna. Now, now that Medialuna is in sharper focus, the project team is assembled, we're well into execution. And I would say that the line of sight on Morello's for the next 12 years is um, we're very confident in that, our ability to generate cash from there. Now is the time to be looking at adding other assets through M&A, through inorganic growth. What I will say, and this is a very important piece, is that because of the health of our balance sheet, because of our forward-looking production plan, because of our ability to generate cash flow out of Morello's, we have the luxury of being patient and being prudent and being selective and opportunistic on M&A. I don't need to get rushed into a deal. And so we will do the right deal at the right time that generates value for shareholders. And for us, M&A isn't just about getting bigger for the sake of getting bigger. It's about building a better, stronger company. So what can we add to the asset pays that is similar in a cash flow profile or potential cash flow to complement what we see as an outstanding asset in Morelos. Right, but here, here's the big company problem always. Well, there's, there's, there's two. One is being able to continue telling a growth story, because we make we make money when your share price goes up. Um, and the second is continually plowing your money back in the ground for future cash flow, not free cash flow, cash flow. So what, what, do, you, what do you do about that? You know, if I look at, you know, obviously um, you're down on, on cash in terms of Q4 because it's very expensive, Q1 few royalties and taxes and so forth, but you're going to need to build quite a cash reserve, which you're then going to need to spend on your new asset to get into production, which is going to generate what sort of numbers for you? What, what, why is it a growth story still? Yeah. And so um, today we're doing about $190 million of cash annually. As we get through this um, cap- heavy capital intensive period, um, we will turn back to that post Medialuna as we're producing 
um, some 380,000 ounces a year, gold equivalent through Medialuna. And so we have a dip on free cash flow and then we'll pull back up in 2025. Now, M&A, there has to be a balance between reinvesting in the operations providing money to shareholders in terms of buyback or dividends and allocating capital through growth and M&A. And as you say, there's um, two really competing interests. One is I want a new project because I want growth and the other is, but I still want free cash flow. And so that thing, that has to be balanced. And that's my job as CEO to make sure we're balancing those competing needs. Okay. Okay. A, a, bit, a bit of honesty that we're going with. <laughs> Unusual. You always count on that for me. Unusual, isn't it, in this sector? Um, well, look, um, see, that's see, that's really interesting to me. So, um, so what would you say to your current shareholders and anyone perhaps looking in, or maybe even people who've dipped out and looking to back, dip back in when they think that the bottom has been found, so to speak? Um, because you you do have that kind of period where getting that balance right is it, you're not quite able to control it. But when Media Luna is up and running, I, I hear what you're saying with regards to the numbers, and one assumes because you've been quite good at it for the past few years, you guys know how to mine and you know how to mine efficiently. So that's going to be okay. This M&A stuff, this selective won't be rushed into M&A um, topic that we talked about is what, what do you look for? Are you saying you're looking for producers um, who have a similar profile to you? That sounds quite expensive. What, yeah. what, 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 is, what, what is the selection criteria? Yeah. And so um, a couple of selection criteria. One, we're a fairly small team. So as I say it, when I look at m and I'm looking at, th at it through an operator's lens or a miner's lens. Can I build a company that when I close my eyes, it makes sense to me to operate? Given that we're a small team and headquartered in Toronto, that sort of restricts us to the North-South Corridor, Canada, the United States, Mexico, potentially Latin America. We've demonstrated to the world that we can make a lot of money in Mexico. People have different views about Mexico. Um, I think uh, I wouldn't rule out another acquisition in Mexico, but certainly that north-south corridor. What we buy will depend on the timing of the transaction, Matthew. And so if it were to happen over the course of the next 18 months, two years, very likely a producing asset. Why is that? My project team is fully occupied with execution on Media Luna. That is mission critical. So I have three priorities. One, continue to deliver out of ELG. Media Luna has to be funded. And so we can't drop the ball on that consistent, reliable production out of ELG. I have a team on fire on that and they know they need to continue to crush it. Number two, execute, execute, execute on Media Luna. That project, will come in on time and on budget. We went to pains as we put out the feasibility study to put in realistic CapEx numbers, a realistic ramp up curve, realistic sustaining numbers with inflationary pressures built in. And so the mandate of that team is to deliver on time and on budget. And then I have another small group looking at M&A. If it happens within the next 18 months, very likely a producing asset. Think about mergers of equals, right? I don't think there's a lot of appetite in the market these days to pay big premiums. You can see what's happened on transactions with premiums over the next couple of days of trading. Um, so not a lot of appetite there for me. 
if M&A happens after the next 18 months and two years when M when Media Luna is online, then we could look at an opportunity to buy another development asset because I have a very talented project team. Could I put them to work somewhere else and generate value that way? And so the idea for us at the end of the day is to become somewhere between a million and a million and a half um, ounce producer annually. I think consolidation is required in the space at the level that we operate at. I think that must happen. There's too many management teams running too small of companies. In order to be relevant, we need to consolidate with others. We know that. Um, we're just we're just getting our own house in order first to do it in a sensible stepwise way. And I want to respond to your other question. You asked me, what would you tell investors? I would say a couple of things. One, um, Torex is a long-term play. We will do what's what's best for the health of the business, have always been wired up that way, and will continue to operate that way. And so if you are a long-term investor, you're probably um, well-served by taking a position in Torex. If you're looking to come in and rent stock and look for razzle-dazzle and turn it around in the next quarter, probably not the company for you. Right. Okay. And that's fair. And that's honest. I, I prefer that because then you don't get that kind of transient audience uh, or shareholder audience um, in your stock. That's not, not healthy or good for anyone. Um, okay. So you, I, want, I want to talk to you about, um, you mentioned m and potentially maybe Mexico, maybe LATAM. It's a pretty fun and interesting spot at the moment um, in terms of social unrest, socialism in the, in the, in the politics everywhere. And um, I think a little bit um, you know, cash out, you know, risk off for LATAM for the last two years because of the politics. Right. You're clearly comfortable operating in Mexico. Um, we've seen a few headlines about nationalism on certain uh, commodities. But as far as you can send precious metals and being a producer allows you, well, an easier ride? I don't know that the ride is easier. I think the ride is earned, if I could describe it in a word. And so, when we got there in 2020, 2010 and started to build out this project, we went to great lengths to establish relationships with local communities. There are 11 of them around us. They all have varying needs. We're talking about small communities here, total population somewhere between five and 6,000 people. And what we did there, we believe that governments grant permits, communities grant permission. Those two things are related. When you have a community that endorses your project, the government is much more likely, once they do their environmental checks and balances, to come in over top and give you the permits you need. And so we have extensive strategies to manage community relations in a very complex area of the world. And that serves us well insofar as government relations and permits are concerned. And so, all of that creates an environment where it's not just the economic benefit we're bringing, our reputation for being an environmentally responsible operator, one that is dedicated and proven about local jobs, local employment, well-paying jobs, safe jobs. At our operations, we just crossed 10 million hours, lost time injury free, clearly an industry record. And so, all of that taken in its totality earns us um, the spot we have in Mexico to produce in the way that we have been. 
Right. Okay. So Mexico, as far as investors are concerned, good place to invest with the right companies. That's what I'm hearing. I, 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 isn't that true of anywhere? I mean, as long as it's an investment grade country, I, I am more interested as an investor, I invest myself in geology, the people, and the operating environment is a bit of a third concern. And so can this team pull off what they say they're going to be pulling off? And I would say that Torex has a longstanding track record of doing exactly that. Right. Well, it, well I, the only reason I put it, the question in that context is because the amount of companies that come on here and tell me they're, in a, they're operating in a tier one jurisdiction, I'm not quite sure what that means anymore um, because there there is, as I say, social unrest, political change. We've got First Nations issues, NGO issues, activism in the space, uh, ESG uh, as, a, as a big topic. It, 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 it seems like a very, very different environment to try to navigate, say, from 10 years ago, mostly for all the right reasons, for the good, good reasons, uh, and but occasionally not. So that's why I ask about your experience in country and, you know, have you had to perhaps change and address your focus um, with regards to running the company? I completely agree with you. And so I would say 20 years ago, even as recently as 10 years ago, mining used to be very internally focused, right? You get your asset, you do your mine plans, you do your exploration, you drill, you blast, you muck, you put your product to market. What has changed in the last 15 years, 10 years, and certainly in the last five years the externalities wrapped around that. And so, as you say, you have community issues, government issues, now a pandemic, now in an inflationary environment, supply chain issues, indigenous relations, and all of those things. And you have a workforce, um, generally speaking in the world, that is hyper-individualized. And so it is hard to get talent. It is hard to attract and retain talent. One of the things that I think is the most interesting about Torex that we don't get a lot of airtime on is our culture and how differentiated it is. Um, and we've worked hard to develop that and maintain that through the application of systems and models called systems leadership. Um, I could talk about that for at least an hour, um, but what it is, it's a place where our motto is we want employees to come to work and willingly give the best they've got every day at all levels of the organization. And it's grounded in something we call the values continuum. And so the idea is, is to operate in a high valued centered way, no matter who we're interacting with. When people ask how you generate the results you do consistently quarter on quarter, there are certain aspects to that that are technical. We have technical systems, technical rules, and robust layers of controls on systems. But the secret sauce at the end of the day is the people and the culture. And I would say there's this old expression that culture eats strategy for breakfast. I would say that holds true in the case of Torex. And so that culture has enabled us to have success internally operating and externally as relates to community relations, as relates to government relations, and all of those additional complexities that we just talked about, Matthew. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd agree with that. When we've gone and bought companies, we, it's one of the first thing we do is look, look at empowering the, the the people, you know, everyone. It's not an ESG department, it's an ESG. Everyone's responsible for ESG and, and, and um, you know, how the company portrays itself, the ambassador for yourself and your company, as we say, uh, with our companies. Um, so, okay, so that, that that's kind of interesting. Um, but, so as far as you're concerned, the, the kind of tier one conversations is, is a moot point. It's it's how you interact 
at a local level with people and using your team to actually you know, re reinforce your own culture. Okay, um, th that's that's good news. Um, I want to talk to you about a phrase I, I saw in one of the marketing bits of marketing material, which is you, you talk about um, skilled institutional investors. Uh, I just wondered what that was because I've heard people throw economic uh, explorers at me, but I haven't heard skilled uh, institutional uh, investors before. What, what do you mean by that? I don't, I don't know the context in which that was. It's in, a, it's in your PowerPoint. Um, that's the way that the, the your uh, sh institutional shareholders are described. I mean, we have, we have a good group of what I would describe as sophisticated institutional investors. What I talked to you about earlier, how um, investors with Torex should have a long-term mindset. Um, I would I would describe that as the predominant uh, holder in Torex shares. Right, and in in terms of that um, group, you know, someone's selling at the moment. Um, is that going to be you're imagining that's more the kind of retail component, or your current institutional guys picking up the the slack? Um, how would you how would you describe trading at the moment? Well, I mean. There's been a bit of sell-off in the space over the last couple of weeks. So I would describe trading at the moment, not just in the Torex name, but more broadly as quite emotional, quite reactionary, and quite volatile. Um, that has really nothing to do with the strength of the underlying business. I believe that will come up. I mean, this uh, point in time, uh, volatility um, driven by U.S. dollar, China, consumption, I think over time, uh, that will come up. The price of gold, I think, may hold. I think the price of copper, as supply isn't coming on in a way that meets the demand requirement. I was at a talk uh, not long ago, and the speaker said something like, we're going to need five Escondidas to meet um, the demand requirement to support the energy transition. And so I think we're at a point in time here in the market. Uh, investors need to have... Um, you know, the will to hang in here for a little while and you will see Torex and our growth plan um, bringing to bear uh, the promise of the value that we are generating day in and day out that today isn't reflected in the stock. So I would describe this point in time as an exponential point for a company like Torex. Okay, so we need to um, bear with the market, but at the same time, look for companies with strong fundamentals. So what what is it that allows you to say, we are one of those companies, we will be profitable, we will look to you know build a growth story component to this organic or acquisition? I mean, we have a history of doing what we say we're going to do, and then delivering on it. And so some companies are really good at talking about things. Other companies are really good at executing. I would describe our strong suit as execution. And so we've pinned guidance three years in a row. Quarter after quarter, we just continue to deliver safe, cost-effective, reliable production. We now, with the Mediluna feasibility study out, have the plan out to 2033. That is the base case reserve plan. We're doing $39 million worth of exploration in this year in order to improve the economics of that plan. We have 450,000 ounces between as average production between now and 2027. And then it falls off in 2028 when Medialuna is the only source of feed. We're looking for opportunities to fill the mill so that we can have 450,000 ounces out now to the foreseeable future. So why Torex? Um, because ultimately we say what we're going to do, we execute against, we say what we said we would do, and then we'll tell you what we're going to do next. And 
I believe we have a track record of doing that. Okay. And one last question with, with the Iran state. It's, it's around how you manage forecasting in a cost. Well, it was cost inflationary and it is to a degree, but it looks like, you know, um, price of oil is coming off. Maybe fuel prices will come off. It's, it's fluctuating. Let's put it that way. There's, there's a fluidity, um, c- coming up. How do you comfortably forecast? What your margin is going to look like, what you you are able to do in terms of the free cash flow, what you what you will be able to do in terms of allocation of that capital, must be tough. Yeah, a lot of things go into that, and so we closed twenty twenty one with a total cash cost of in the six hundred seventy five dollars per ounce range, ASIC at nine twenty eight. Um, so as I talked about that ASIC margin, right around the fifty percent range, a lot went into forecasting for twenty twenty two. We wanted to build in inflation. We had some additional strip in the pit, so that went to our ASIC number. Wanted to build all of that in and be realistic about it while holding the operations to maintaining those margins that we need to continue to deliver the cash to fund Media Luna. Let me give you an example. So we knew the price of cyanide was going up. That's a key input cost for us. Reagents and labor are our two highest spend operating costs, cyanide being the primary one. So there were times in 2020 when we were up around five, six kilograms a ton on cyanide consumption. As we know the price of cyanide is going up, I challenged my metallurgy and my plant team, reduce consumption challenge my procurement team, buy as much as you can on spot to cover the volumes, we'll find a place to store it. When you see a price you like, push our partners to get into a long-term arrangement. And so we've now had a lot of success in reducing consumption on cyanide. We're in the three kilogram a ton range that pulls down total spend. And we're working on unit pricing as well, getting as much as we can on spot and building a supply that we have sitting at port. And so that's just one example. There are hundreds like it. So the idea for me, Matthew, is to be realistic about the supply chain um, problems that are facing not only Torx, but the world, and get really proactive and challenging with your team about controlling the things you can control. I will not listen to my team sit back and say, Oh, everything's gotten more expensive. Our total cash cost is going to be 10%, 15%, 20% more. Tell me what you can do to bring that down. And you would be, when you have the right team in place that has that continuous improvement mindset, um, I've been quite pleased with what I've been seeing about maintaining those margins. Taking responsibility. I like that. I said it last. That was the last question. It's not. There's, there's another one. I just thought of it, um, which is again something you mentioned earlier uh, with, with regards to um, share buyback and potential dividends, etc. Do you think that's the right strategy going into the phase the next two years or so in terms of getting um, Media Luna up and running? Do you think it's the right thing to be dishing out and doing, or would your shareholders yeah. forgive you if you didn't? Short answer is no. Short is it's not the right time for us to be doing that. Our capital is fully allocated to what we think is going to generate the most value, which is the investment in Media Luna and keeping our eyes on the horizon for MA. After that time, once Media Luna is up and running, or we've now um, left the single asset moniker and have a couple of assets, um, then would be the right time to look at returning capital to shareholders.